You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. It's great being back. It's great being back live after being trapped inside the Matrix for like two and a half years. Jeez. So, uh, so really good to see you all in the flesh. That is very, very important to us here at City Lights. So... Julian Aguon is here with us. We're very, very excited. Um, celebrating his new book, No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies, a lyric essay. It's published by Astra Books. Before we begin, before we do anything, this is customary. I would like to acknowledge that this space that we are occupying is amongst unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatush Ohlone peoples. A moment of respect, please. So Julian Aguon is a Chamorro human rights lawyer and defender from Guam. He makes his home in the village of Yona. Yona? Sonia? Okay, my apologies. Uh, he's the founder of Blue Ocean Law, a progressive firm that works at the intersection of indigenous rights and environmental justice. Mr. Aguon serves on the Council of Progressive International, a global collective with the mission of mobilizing progressive forces around the world behind a shared vision of social justice. His writing and his activism are part of a continuous fabric of thinking and creation, which has strong ties to his ancestral homeland and to its vital community of people. With No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies, Julian Aguan has connected the local with the global, with great wisdom and insight, showing us how struggles for justice transcend borders, and there is much we can learn from his delectable and very, very powerful prose. So with him tonight is none other than Rebecca Solnit, who is absolutely no stranger to City Lights. We've had her before many, many times. She needs a little introduction. She is one of our country's greatest thinkers. <laughs> Writer, historian, activist. She's the author of more than 20 books on feminism, Western indigenous history, popular power, social change, insurrection, and more. She's a columnist at The Guardian and regular contributor to LitHub. Her most recent book is Orval's Roses, published by Viking Books. Without much ado, I give you now, Julian Aguan. Welcome. Have a day, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming and joining us tonight for this beautiful evening. I'm actually going to get right into it. I'll start reading from the title essay of the book. In Guam, even the dead are dying. As I write this, the U.S. Department of Defense is ramping up the militarization of my homeland, part of its $8 billion scheme to relocate 5,000 Marines from Okinawa to Guam. In fact, ground has already been broken along the island's beautiful northern coastline for a massive firing range complex. The complex, consisting of five live tra fire training ranges and support facilities, is being built dangerously close to the island's primary source of drinking water, the Northern Guamlands Aquifer. Moreover, the complex is situated over several historically and culturally significant sites, including the remnants of ancient villages several thousands of years old, where our ancestors' remains remain. 
The construction of these firing ranges will entail the destruction of more than 1,000 acres of native limestone forests. These forests are unbearably beautiful, took millennia to evolve, and today function as essential habitat for several endangered endemic species, including a fruit bat, a flightless rail, and three species of tree snails, not to mention a swiftlet, a starling, and a slender toed gecko. The largest of the five ranges, a 59-acre multi-purpose machine gun range, will be built a mere 100 feet from the last remaining reproductive Hatsunlaga tree in Guam. If only superpowers were concerned with the stuff of lowercase earth like forests and fresh water. If only they were curious about the whisper and scurry of small lives. If only they were moved by beauty. If only. But the militarization of Guam is nothing if not proof that they are not so moved. In fact, the buildup now underway is happening over the objections of thousands of the island's residents. Many of these protesters, including myself, are indigenous Chamorros whose ancestors endured five centuries of colonization and who see this most recent wave of unilateral action by the U.S. simply as the latest course in a long and steady diet of dispossession. When the Navy first released its highly technical and 11,000 page long draft environmental impact statement in November 2009, the people of Guam submitted over 10,000 comments outlining our concerns, many of us strenuously objecting and opposed to the military's plans. We produced simplified educational materials on the anticipated adverse impacts of those plans and provided community trainings on them. We took hundreds of people hiking through the jungle specifically slated for destruction. We took several others swimming in the harbor where the military proposed dredging some 40 acres of coral reef for the birthing of a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. We testified so many times and in so many ways in the streets and in the offices of elected officials. We even filed lawsuits under the National Environmental Policy Act, effectively forcing the Navy to conduct further environmental impact assessments, thus pushing the buildup back a few years. But delay was all we won, and the bulldozers are back with a vengeance. A $78 million contract for the live fire training range complex has been awarded to Black Construction, which has already begun clearing 89 acres of primary limestone forest and 110 acres of secondary forest. It's bitterly ironic that so many of these machines bear the name Caterpillar, when the very thing they are destroying is that precious creature's preciously singular habitat. To be sure, such forests host the house, house the host plants for the endemic Mariana AIDS spot butterfly. But then again, maybe a country that routinely prefers power over strength and living over letting live is no country for AIDS spot butterflies. While this wave of militarization should elicit our every outrage, indignation is not nearly enough to build a bridge to anywhere. It's useful, yes, but we need to get a hell of a lot more serious about articulating alternatives if we hope to withstand the forces of predatory global capitalism and ultimately replace its ethos of extraction with one of our own. In the case of my own people, an ethos of reciprocity. And nowhere is that ethos more alive than in those very same forests 
for it is there that our zuamti, or healers, are perpetuating our culture, in particular, our healing practices. It is there on the forest floor and in the crevices of the limestone rock that many of the plants needed to make our medicine grow. It is there that our medicine women gather the plants, their mothers and their mothers' mothers gathered before them. These plants combined with others harvested from elsewhere on the island treat everything from anxiety to arthritis. As someone who suffers from regular bouts of bronchitis, I can attest to the fact that the medicine Auntie Francis Areola Cabrera Menno makes to treat respiratory problems has proven more effective in my case than any medicine of the modern world. Yet Auntie Francis, like so many other Zoomti I know, takes no credit for the cure. As she tells it, to do so would be hubris, as so many others are involved in the healing process. The plants themselves, with whom she converses in a secret language, her mother, who taught her how to identify which plants have which properties, and also how and when to pick them and the ancestors who give her permission to enter the jungle and who on occasion favor her, allowing her to find everything she needs and more. More than this, she tells me that I too am part of that process, that people like me who seek out her services give her life meaning, that she wouldn't know what to do with herself if she wasn't making medicine, that the life of a healer was always hers to have, because she was born breech under a new moon and thus had the hands for healing. But such things are inevitably lost in translation and no military on earth is sensitive enough to perceive something as soft as the whisper of another worldview. Earlier this month, I received an invitation to serve on the Global Advisory Council for Progressive International a new and exciting global initiative to mobilize people around the world behind a shared vision of global justice. So, of course, I said yes. Truth be told, I know little by way of details. What kind of time commitment are we talking about? How will we work as a group? Who else said yes? But I am ready anyway. Ready to build a global justice movement that is anchored, at least in part, in the intellectual contributions of indigenous peoples peoples who have a unique capacity to resist despair through connection to collective memory and who just might be our best hope to build a new world rooted in reciprocity and mutual respect for the earth and for each other. The world we need, the world of our dreams, the same world who, on a quiet day in September, bent down low and breathed in the ear of Arundhati Roy. She is still on her way. Thank you so much. What a great audience. What a great reading. What a great evening. I'm so excited to actually meet you at... Uh, I have a climate project with my collaborator, the Fiji-based Thelma Young Lutuna Tabua, who pointed me to his work, which includes, um, the introduction did not mention, um, a Pulitzer finalist essay in the Atlantic about climate action, and uh, you, you, get, you do so many things, <laughs> and including visiting San Francisco. Is this your second time? Yeah, I think it's second. Okay, we have decided it will become a regular stopover <laughs> for you, because clearly San Francisco is really excited to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank, 
Thank you for proving my point. I have a bunch of questions for you, but I had just reread this essay you just read, and there's a passage in it I just found utterly striking and profound and felt like something I had a, from very far outside, a vague in sort of sense of, but you describe it in this, in a way so exciting I just stuck it in an essay I'm writing for the, um, but uh, you wrote, um, ready to build a glo global justice movement that is anchored, at least in part, in intellectual contributions of indigenous peoples. People who have an, a unique capacity to resist despair through connection to collective memory, and who might just be our best, who just might be our best hope to build a new world rooted in reciprocity and mutual respect for the earth and each other, the world we need, the world of our dreams. And I wonder if you would say more both about the intellectual contributions and the capacity to resist despair. Sure, no, thank That's you. That's all. <laughs> No, thank you so much, Rebecca. This is this is amazing to be just here tonight with all of you, and um, I really sort of meant it, and I still mean it. Um, I have been so floored, you know, um, every time that I worked with indigenous communities. So I also, like by day, I'm a human rights lawyer. I smuggled enough time to get this book done during the pandemic, but actually all day long I'm a human rights lawyer. So I've worked with indigenous communities, obviously my own, but also from the Northern Mariana Islands, from Fiji, Vanuatu, Tonga, Papua New Guinea. I mean, so many Pacific Island Islanders who are the most hopeful the most hopeful and who have the least amount of climate despair. You know, because they not only are they frontline communities and they understand that the stakes are not only high, but they're devastatingly high, but they are actively engaged in innovative work to sort of stay the destruction, you know? Like, I write about that a lot in the essay that Rebecca just mentioned from The Atlantic. It's called To Hell With Drowning. Because like that was like the thing that became so clear to me, you know? All of these indigenous Pacific Islanders who are reaching for the best insights of their culture and trying to apply them meticulously to sort of the problem that is climate change and, you know, the related crisis that we face. Um, and so I feel like, I, I don't know, I think it's because I'm so, uh, rooted in this community, a part of these communities, and working on exceedingly concrete actions with these communities. That's why I feel so hopeful, and that's why I love your Not Too Late project as well. You know, <laughs> no, it's great. Um, have you all heard of the Not Too Late project? Uh, you maybe you should mention it. Yeah. So with Thelma, who I just mentioned, who's based in Fiji and uh, married to a Fijian climate activist, who's one of the Pacific climate warriors with the great slogan we're not drowning, we're fighting. Mm -hmm. We started a project called Not Too Late, which is on Twitter and Facebook. It's a website. Uh, it will be a book with Julian's essay, that th the finalist essay, and 20 other contributors as well as Thelma and me. It's called Not Too Late because Thelma and I both really wanted to respond to a lot of the despair, doomism, defeat, when it's based on inaccurate or missing information, but also on inaccurate theories of change. Americans are so impatient, and I really feel more and more that this culture is like, if you plant a, if you plant a garden on Tuesday and it's not flowering on Wednesday, you fail. <laughs> you know, you just see so much, um, you know, if we don't win everything, we've lost everything. You know, I wrote yesterday that the, you know, the hope is not that the ship isn't sinking. This ship, which you could call capitalism, the fossil fuel era, 
white supremacy, imperialism, lots of things is definitely sinking. That the good news that's not the the good news isn't that the ship isn't sinking, it's that we have lifeboats and we know how to build a whole lot more and we all need to get to work doing that. You know, it's not guaranteed, but it's not impossible. So it's really about both the facts and the frameworks around climate with the hopes as all these birds fly overhead um, and the laundry dangles um, of just inviting people to engage because it's not too late. This is a crucial decade of decision. What we do in this decade determines the fate of the earth and every living thing on it for millennia to come. Yeah. And, you know, so if you're not there already, welcome aboard. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lifeboat with your name on it. Yeah. Or, or maybe you're building a lifeboat yeah. for someone else with their name on it. Yeah. No, it's honestly, it, it yeah. reminds me of the last sentence of, you. have you read the book, All We Can Save? Yeah. It's an amazing new, new book, too. It contributes to, it's like a feminist lens on tackling the climate crisis. But I think the last sentence, I'm paraphrasing, it's something along the lines of, it is true, in the end, it is a remarkable thing to be alive in a moment that matters so much. It's just an entire reframing, you know? Um, yeah. And I'm seeing more hope, more joy, more positive visions about what we're doing in this moment. The sense that the only way we get out of this crisis, we actually build something better, more generous, mm -hmm. more egalitarian, more beautiful, less destructive. And something Thelma and I are really passionate about is, and I'm sorry I can't face everyone at the same time, I'm, um, but you know, Hello, 180 degrees of amazing people. <laughs> but uh, but is that there's always the, the old rhetoric was that we are in an era of abundance Ooh. and we have to give it up for an era of scarcity. And Thelma and I are like, no, we're in an era of scarcity, scarcity of hope, scarcity of connection, um, abundance of loneliness, abundance of toxicity, whether it's fossil fuel as metaphorical poison in our politics, starting wars in Ukraine and Iraq and et cetera or the literal poison and that we see here in, in Richmond with the Chevron refinery and other refineries all up our own little cancer alley here in the Delta or you know all over the world yeah. and so what we actually need to renounce if there's going to be renunciation is various yeah. kinds of poverty, destruction, hopelessness, yeah. alienation yeah. and uh, you all ready for that? Yeah, no. <laughs> no, honestly, and even the passages that you read, Rebecca, honestly, like when I really think about intellectual contributions, if I hone in on them, I think for my own people, the indigenous Chamorro people of the Mariana Islands, I think our quintessential cultural value is reciprocity. And I know that because language contains information. And we have more words for reciprocity than any other virtue. We have so many words for it because it's in the context of social settings. For example, there's when someone dies, you know, at a funeral, it's not just the word is not just inafamalic and it's not sensuli, it's ika. It's like a very particular form. And that's beautiful to have for people to cultivate this virtue. And the evidence is in the language and the fact that we have an abundance of words for that. That's just proof of what I mean about intellectual contributions, because that is what's going to get us over this hurdle. Wow, I want to see that list, if there is one. Yeah, I'm compiling one, actually. <laughs> oh, oh, hooray, yeah. hooray. Yeah, and, uh, and I love this, you know, I was a young anti-nuclear activist at the Nevada test site when the Western Shoshone showed up and said, not only is this our land, but we'd like them to stop bombing it. And so we formed this alliance, sort of the early days of 
environmental justice and I became a sort of mainstay of the Western Shoshone Defense Project yeah, yeah. and was working also with indigenous artist Louis DeSoto who was here at San Francisco State and stuff and it completely it was my intellectual transformation mm. and so great and that sense of you know I had this inkling that these people consigned to the past as Native Americans were told that you know you're already extinct or you will be etc are the future and then the Zapatistas rose up mm. And it started to swim into focus. I'm on the board of Oil Change International, which with um, the Indigenous Environmental Network, you may have seen that report yeah, last yeah. year, um, Indigenous North Americans have prevented or delayed the extraction of 25% of the fossil fuel on this continent that otherwise would have been extracted and burned. Yeah. And the future is being built that way. But I wondered if you could speak specifically about resisting despair through connection to collective memory. Because yeah. I found that just exciting and beautiful because I think when I was talking about American despair it was yeah. partly amnesia if you yeah. don't remember the past in a sense you don't remember the future you don't yeah. have a template for how change works yeah. what's possible yeah. where power lies sure um, and I, that's my version but yeah no I think I think I think this my answer is sort of located here <laughs> I don't know if this makes sense but basically it's sort of like the way climate change and capital the way these problems are so massive and they require I, my friend, an active fellow activist friend, said that neoliberalism has conned us into trying to combat cl the climate crisis as individuals. And I was like, that's the real sort of key difference. It's like coming from a collectivist culture, it becomes very easy to understand, you know, that we have some of part of the answer, you know, to the question of how to get out of the mess that we're in, precisely because we don't come from hyper individualistic cultures. And it's, it's climate change is just a great concrete example of how you need uh, an, a collectivist worldview because our response has to be collective. I mean, that to me is the clearest answer. Yeah. And then our power is only collective. As individuals, we don't have much. I've seen Bill McKibben approach many times as, what's the best thing I can do for climate yeah. as an individual? And he just always looks at them and says, stop being an individual. Go find your, you know, go join oh, something. Yeah, go, find your, go find your people. Yeah. At, uh, but also that sense of co connection to collective memory. Yeah, that was yeah. just so exciting. Because I think that deep memory that yeah. despite colonialism, yeah. despite genocide, yeah. environmental destruction, indigenous communities have preserved, yeah. you know, yeah, no, cultures and life ways. I mean, like when I, like I was just meeting my, my old friend from high school, actually, who's here in the audience. And we were just talking, I'm like, wow, we, we just landed on this, just the conclusion that we're just so grateful for, you know, for coming of age on Guam, in that culture, in that community. Like we're, like we have been through some shit, obviously. Like we've been through so much, unspeakable acts of violence of the US and actually not just the US, but Spain. We've been colonized for such a long time, but but my people are so we have it's not just about the resilience either it's not it's and I think that's an important distinction it's not only a matter of like constantly surviving sort of horrendous acts of violence it's also a matter of joy having access to joy you know and I think in in the in my culture like I think it's it's collective memory and it's, it's sort of that rich but it's like this richer repository that almost functions like a wellspring and an antidote to despair because we have so much joy even despite all of those things and it, in part I'll give you a more concrete answer we don't just have like nuclear families tomorrow people we don't operate from like a perspective of nuclear families like oh we have oh you know it's like I have western models all like the well and also heteronormative the husband wife and the kid and the kid or whatever no it's clans we actually have this large massive 
pretty much, large extended families that we call clans. And that is also such a rich source of support for each other. And it just sort of mitigates the otherwise really sort of like enormous amounts of historical trauma that we've endured. Yeah. As an anti-nuclear activist, I love denuclearizing the family. <laughs> as a San Franciscan, I love chosen family oh, and queer yeah, yeah, family yeah, yeah, as yeah, part yeah, of yeah. the picture. So, yeah. hooray. I, it feels like this might be a good moment to just sort of the next question would be, you told me I should ask you about beauty, joy, and abundance. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Thank you. No, because this Tell is, me about I think beauty, it's joy, important. And abundance. I know, right? All of them. I'll take it. I'll take it for 200. No, it's so, it's so important, I think, because, you know, like I, on this book tour, it started with V and um, Brooklyn, and then I, this is my fourth stop. And I'm realizing that part of what's, like the questions that I've been asked, you know, I mean, part of what's happening, I think, is some problems, the sheer scale of it, like, for example, the climate crisis, right? Something about the sheer scale of it, the enormity of it, um, it just renders us so, I don't know, incapable of speaking about it, you know, like, and so like, it also has been accompanied by this narrative of, of austerity and scarcity, the way you talk about, but I have found access to like, like by uplifting these stories, I'll give you an example from the Atlantic piece, the one that I wrote recently. I didn't really know that I had something until I was like speaking with one of the village headmen. And I was like, we did an interview. He had to take like, he had to, it took like four hours to get to the spot where they had enough Wi-Fi for the connection. And I interviewed him and we talked for such a, like a long period of time. He told me about in 2014, the first Fijian village that had to be formally relocated, that had to leave all of their sort of, their ancestral homeland and move further inland, all of this stuff. And, and I was hearing it and I had heard all these stories, but then something magical happens. He tells me about this one old man who basically returns to the grave because what you should know is these Fijians did leave, but they weren't able to bring their, you know, their buried loved ones with them. So they left them behind. But this one old man makes that journey every day to the grave of his dead wife. And I was wondering what flowers, if any, he brings them. And I was like, maybe that is how to start talking about climate change. We need to find an astonishing new level of intimacy. I believe it's intimacy that is like capable of like sort of making, sort of cracking that conversation. And the reason why it relates to beauty and abundance and joy is I think we have access to these things. And I think it's actually more sort of at the ready than we realize we're just, we're almost forgetting that part of this work of like being activists and part of the work like tackling the climate change is about remembering in the end that we are telling each other stories to live, right? Like Joan would say, but we're telling each other stories and we're just, we're forgetting either how to be a storyteller. We're just, we've lost some of that gift. So I'm trying to figure out ways to identify like the stories and help other young people, some of whom are in the audience, find ways to tell the story better. And I think, I think that is an answer to your question. I know it's everywhere. But I, I, I honestly believe it's storytelling, it's the collective memory, and all of that, all of that just makes for a, a sense of an abundance that we can then communicate to other people who are otherwise so disengaged from this conversation. They think it's too big, it's too impenetrable, they can't enter it. Like, I actually know some young people who feel, who don't even take the first step, who don't even actually enter the conversation because they feel sort of stuck at that level. I mean, one of the things that's striking reading this book is that leaving aside your indigenous language, you know, even in English you're bilingual, you speak the law and you speak poetry. Mm. 
And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, that kind of bilingualism, mm. the kind of logical, codified, mm. cut and dried, innocent or guilty, you know, rule bound language of law, yeah. which is never the, you know, which yeah. even though I'm saying bad things about it, is how we get stuff done. Yeah. And then poetry that celebrates the subtle, the ambiguous, the ambivalent, the, you know, the shadows and vapors and mists of consciousness, perception, and possibility. Mm. And, you know, you have a foot in both, and how does that work? <laughs> That's a big question. No, but I, I, I love it. We have time. Okay, good. Very good. Um, honestly, I've been practicing law for, I don't know, 14 years or so, and I... It's been really fulfilling, you know, like we have helped indigenous communities defend the right of pre pre free prior and informed consent up against extractive industries like multinational corporations seeking to mine the mineral wealth at the bottom of the sea. So we've taken on extractive industries, we've worked with West Papua, Chamorro people on the right of self-determination, and I understand so clearly the law's usefulness in those settings, you know. but. I don't know. The, the best way to describe the sort of difference between the two is um, something that Arundhati Roy said once about sometimes you're, the way you're approaching your use of language, it's really, it, you're cultivating the cold precision of an assassin's bullet. You know, and then that's sort of how I see my use of the law. I deploy the law really tact, sort strategically in service of the vulnerable, and I understand that in certain venues, it's really promising, and it can sort of sort of stay certain, you know, terrible things, you know, and, and arrest the spread of that. But then other times, um, like writing, like this book, for example, was the complete opposite. It couldn't be more different, you know, because instead of that, I'm looking for warmth. I'm writing to build a fire to warm as many bodies as possible. It's like, I, it's like a hearth, you know, like it's a, like a living room. I'm trying to get, gather my beloved community and like wrap my arms around them. And I think that's what I'm trying to do. Wow, I'm a little emotional, but I think that's what I'm trying to do with this book in particular. I, it's like an embrace. Arundhati actually called it an embrace and I cried when I read her introduction because I was like, wow, you know, she really gets this book. This book is an attempt to wrap my arms around what I believe matters most. Yeah. And it includes a number of speakers. <laughs> It includes a number of speeches mm. to specific communities, so there's a real sense that you also go out and speak very directly to graduating students, your peers at, you know, your, I guess your the people coming after you at law school mm. and other groups. At, um, yeah, but it's and it's interesting. So you feel like like one language does the work kind of against and the other yeah. for in oh, a sense. Oh yeah, and one is like hyper ad adversarial. Like, and I think yeah. it's important because it's important to know exactly who your enemy is sometimes and to call them by name, you know, and to go after them. Like, I mean, that's what the law is. It's, it's a way to, for me to channel all of that aggression, you know, like, and all of that moral outrage. Um, but then the writing is so different, you know, because it's, there's rage there, but it's rage that took a minute to breathe because it cannot be something that just burns other people down. I mean, and that is part of what I have found. I was like, we... I believe we're living in an era where we desperately need some radical listening. I write about that in the some book. Some radical what? Listening. You know, like, which is like close. Like I, like, I tried to write so quietly in this book to almost have to force the reader to lean in and listen. Because it's something about the way Empire works. Part of its mechanism, its logistics, is noise. It's so noisy. 
both the work of empire and the work of confronting empire. And it's, it's losing, we are losing our ability to speak to each other with any kind of compassion or kindness or just enough love. You know, it's not sufficiently loving. So like I tried to like slow that down. I had to try to slow my heart beat down to write this book because I just felt like I'm standing against this firing range with my community and we are seeing the train coming down the track, you know, and it's, it's completely in the present. There is no such thing as future tense. It is here and now, just like the climate crisis. And what do we do in that moment? We, we try to protect our loved ones, you know, and, and we need to find the language to do that and to uplift each other because we need each other and there's room for all of us. You kind of remind me of that Buddhist anecdote I tell in Orwell's Roses about you're being chased by a tiger, you, you fall off a cliff, you grab a strawberry plant and then realize its roots are coming loose and you won't be there for long. And the, an the, the Buddhist question is, what do you do? And the answer is, savor the strawberry, the ripe strawberry on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that, that's how I feel. That's a lot of me. Yeah, how it is. yeah. Activists on the front line. I, I even I, I felt this sometimes in Fiji. I felt this in PNG. You know, with people like like they're so a frontline community. Everything is everything. They you, they could choose to turn the to tell the story of chicken a chicken little ish story. Just yeah. run around. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. I just burn everyone down. Like in the process, like you know. But it's it's not helping. You know, it's not. But instead, the like the quieter sort of—it's like I guess you call it—I don't know—like just getting closer to your loved ones and almost like breathing. I, that's why I use that word in that essay too. I feel like you know I was just using the word breathing in the ear of Arundhati Roy, but that's sort of what I'm doing. And like another part of this idea that I'm sort of developing of radical listening is—it's about listening to the lives of those who are more vulnerable than you those whose lives are in a more precarious place you know and i and i feel that way about the butterfly i'm like i feel like i have my ear to the ground and i just hear that butterfly and i also hear the humpback whales that are also along the coast they have a nursery ground and all of it is on the chopping block the u.s you should all know the u.s military right at this moment has just completed a plan to militarize a swath of the ocean off the coast of guam and the cnmi that's roughly the size of india that is how much of the ocean and so this entire like this the like school of humpback whales who sing you know are directly imperiled by this. And so like, I feel like I'm trying to find a way to listen to them as well. Are you suing the U.S. government? Yeah, we've been this? suing the U.S. I government. I sort of assumed. But constantly. But we, need to, we need to get you on yeah. the record about yeah, that. Yes, Thank yes. you. We have Thank sued, you. we have sued the U.S. military and also, but you know what's interesting? It's not just the military, it's the other U.S. federal agencies that are largely complicit. For example, NOAA at sea and Fish and Wildlife on land, they have effectively give these waivers. So we have this panoply of federal environmental statutes that are sort of allegedly sort of, you know, they're intended to protect the environment, both marine and terrestrial, but they don't. But they don't, not for like a le legal reason, but a political one, sort of like these agencies are giving waivers. So for example, um, NOAA gave a waiver to the to take like 66,000 marine mammals. That is not that is not a letter of authorization. That is not an incidental take permit. That's a death sentence. That's a death warrant. That is what that is. And like, you know, we have to read it that way. It is not a contract. It is a eulogy. Yeah. 
I don't know that thing. Oh. Wow. Are there other, you know, I, I looked at your website, which talked about your law firm and leading a term, a team of prominent international lawyers representing the Republic of, God, I never have to say, Vanuatu. Yeah, out loud. Yes, <laughs> Vanuatu, too. Uh, in its initiative to request an advisory opinion on climate change from the International Court of Justice. And didn't the prime minister of that country just lead the way on a, the fossil-free... Non-proliferation. Um, yeah. yeah, the fossil non-proliferation yeah. treaty. There are some countries in the Pacific, honestly, that are punching well above their weight. I would say the I'm Marshall so Islands above. is one of them. So much above. Yeah. S speaking as a country punching in the wrong way, way and or way below yeah, its weight yeah, or both. Yeah. Yeah, well, the Marshall Islands is one of them, and Vanuatu is another. Vanuatu has also taken a really difficult stance when it comes to the national liberation uh, struggles of the people of West Papua, who are militarily occupied by Indonesia. So they've taken a principled stand over and over, even when it's very difficult for them geopolitically. So I, I have lo long admired this country, but now I'm actually we're kind of lead counsel for Vanuatu as it's pursuing this advisory opinion. And in effect, what it's intending to do is sort of um, basically bridge two international legal regimes, the international human rights legal regime and the international climate legal regime, which are currently bifurcated, but they have something to say to each other, deep and profound, and that's sort of some of that work. Sort of like a re realizing, you know, that you know, you know how it is, silos are over. You know, and that's what this is attempting to do, and it would have ramifications not just for present but also for future generations. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I hope we get to follow that, and I hope you win it, but big. Yeah, <laughs> um, how you know, um, so many ways, so many direct where should we go from here? Is there something you want to talk to this audience about? I'm looking at my yeah, watch our, when we should we? like. A few more minutes and then get to questions, Peter, or yeah. from the audience, or... Are we good you know, time, yeah. I guess one yeah. of my questions is, why does the climate movement need poetry? Oh, God. It just does. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. Obviously, like, obviously. You know, I what like, do you think? It's just, it's so obvious to me. We just poetry, but not just poetry, but music, art. It needs yeah. all of it. It needs to read for all of that energy, you know? It does, because it... And it also because, in part because it's not, like, was it Tony K. Bambara who said you have to make the revolution irresistible? Was that? Okay, thank you. So I was like, <laughs> that's part of our problem. Every, like, no one wants to come to the austere camp, the self-immolation <laughs> camp, the camp where, like, everyone looks like they're starving. They, and, they, and that's why I loved your book, Orwell's Roses, because you actually write about that. I love the passage about you. you, you so in this book, Rebecca, among other things, she resurrects this, no, this sort of, the whole thing, the history. Um, of uh, breads and roses, bread and roses, and what that slogan means. But this—it's a meditation on needing more than just bread. The physical stuff of life, like food, housing, housing, shelter, etc. But we need culture. You know, we need all beauty, the joy, beauty, nature, yeah. and the freedom to determine what that yeah. is. And that phrase, which I didn't understand till I wrote the book, mm. was really not just fighting against the right that didn't want poor people, working people, to have anything, including bread. But a lot of the left, which didn't, was was like, yeah, you should have bread, but you don't need roses. Roses mm. are literally somebody wrote to Orwell that flowers are bourgeois, <laughs> yeah, that's which, right. yeah. which made me deliriously happy because it so so encapsulates this kind of austerity and grimness yeah. that we don't need beauty, we don't need pleasure, and of course, flowers have been around for tens of millions of years longer than human beings have. Everything we eat is either, with a few exceptions 
mostly from the ocean and fun fungi, mm-hmm. is either a flowering plant or something that mm-hmm. ate a flowering mm-hmm. plant. You know, like flowers are not bourgeois. Yeah. Flowers were not bourgeois yeah. hundred million years ago. Yeah, and we just and, need uh, to reclaim that. Yeah. I mean, because I think it's really high time. I mean, we are, like you yeah. are and other people are really reclaiming this sense of the abundant, you know? Yeah. We are inviting people in. I but love because it as the, 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 the abundance. Yeah. Like it's, like it's, it's a place. Like it has an article, right? The. Yeah, yeah. the abundance. Yeah. I like that. Like, yeah. Well, I do too, because maybe it is a place. Maybe, you know, and is, I, is it in the South Pacific? <laughs> well, well, North Pacific. But yeah, <laughs> South, South too. But yeah, no, I, I don't know. I just feel like, honestly, I feel like it's so important. One of your messages that I always, like, this is probably the longest message that I've taken away from your body of work. I haven't told you this. But basically, I believe that you have been on to something when you talk about the way you write about hope. I think it's been the most meaningful of all the literature about hope, precisely because it's located in this sort of like, it's bound up. It's it's not disaggregated from uncertainty. It's that, I was like, as soon as I read it the first time years, I was like, yes, that is exactly correct. Because something about the cynicism, um, something about like optimism or pessimism, all of those are just like ridiculous categories. And they're, they're rooted in certainty. Like we know what the future holds, but we yeah. don't know what it holds. No, yeah. no. We don't, and that's why we should act. Yeah, yeah. I, I have yeah. three sources for that. One is Buddhism, which is very committed to the sort of radical uncertainty mm. and the, the sort of codependent arising. One is indigeneity, which really made me hopeful when mm. I saw the transformations around the quincentennial in the Americas that led to the Zapatista uprising, the election of Bill Morales, mm-hmm. so much kind of cultural revival, mm-hmm. reclaiming rights and land. And then the third thing would be Terminator 2, where, oh, yeah. <laughs> where they say the, fut- the future, d- you know, the future is, you know, yeah. you know essentially the f- you know, we are writing the future now. The yeah. future does not exist. It's what yeah. we make it in the yeah. present. And I think that excites people. Yeah. It's like what totally yeah. comes It excites no, and I everybody. Think that, that's, a, you know, I think Aaron Dottie Roy called something the open space of possibility, but I'm getting it slightly wrong again. <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but it is like certainty is a slam door. Uncertainty is no door because yeah. no walls yeah. and people often want to box themselves yeah. in because people find uncertainty really uncomfortable yeah. and it's really been disturbing particularly around climate but around change in general to see how these false prophets yeah. you know it's really a problem in the climate movement because it's not only preventing people from engaging if you think it's too late and we've lost and there's yeah. nothing we can do you're not going to do anything yeah. but also there's so much grief, despair, fear, people worried about whether they have any future at all, particularly young people. And I see these people with a lot of power pushing that. And it feels like it's self-aggrandizement yeah. that, you know, it's like you have a choice of saving yourself or the yeah, world yeah. in this sense. Because to hope is to be foolish, to be naive, to risk, to possibly be wrong. And instead, they're building up this kind of fortress of self, yeah. you know, with closed doors at the expense of everything else. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, no, it's, yeah. yeah, so we getting def- people to yeah. know, and you learn that from the past. And this really amazing thing happened today. And Joe Manchin had this. Mm. How many of you mm. followed that yes, today? Yeah. Joe Manchin had, you know, because we passed the IRA, which is mm-hmm. a whittled down Build Back Better, which mm-hmm. is a whittled, whittled down Green, Green New Deal. Yeah. So it all starts with a bunch of young people in 2018 who weren't supposed to have any power, but basically wrote the Biden platform and 
you know, did yeah, so much yeah, to make yeah. all this happen and change our sense of what was possible. So part of, you know, the IRA had some stinky things along with great things in it, but also there was this like, well, then, but then Manchin gets his little side deal to build a pipeline, an incredibly destructive pipeline for fossil fuel mm -hmm. through West Virginia, loosen up the permitting process, mm -hmm. and it got shot down today, and people didn't see that coming. Mm -hmm. And why did it get shut down? You know, if you don't have the small the collective view. memory, yeah. you think powerful people hand things yeah. down from above. You think yeah. the Supreme Court gave us marriage equality yeah. rather than, you know, yeah. millions of people fought from below to change the collective imagination yeah. Yeah. and the powerful just ratified it. You know, the climate movement went after this hard and uh, there were protests all week. There's been so many kinds of action and they just won this big thing. It's so great. And I saw a lot of people assuming Manchin would get what he wanted and being bitter about it before it was real. And yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. don't, don't, I sort of feel like we need these, like one rule has to be, you can't, you can't give up on behalf of other people. You, <laughs> because that's what I, I see, you know, yeah. and you can't, yeah, you, you can't give up yeah. while the game is still being played. Because mm. one thing I saw, and this is something I really saw back 30 years ago when, you know, the, with the sort of quincentennial stuff was yeah, a yeah. lot of white people are very eager, you know, and a middle class people are very eager to give up on behalf of others and they yeah. consider it a form of solidarity. And often there's like, my despair is a form of solidarity. <laughs> and it's, it's like, crazy. don't fucking put someone in a coffin when they're not dead. <laughs> you yeah, know, because no, that's what it really amounts to no, when I you get give it. up on behalf of other people, which yeah. is what these sort of yeah. doomsayers yeah. are doing and it's yeah. so destructive yeah. and I you know I go after them indirectly I'm yeah. trying to figure out how to go after this yeah. very high profile doom spreader of 100,000 yeah. followers on Twitter yeah. directly it's, it's uh, especially it's especially critical work to do for young people yeah. to invite you know to let them know that there's still room to act yeah, and, you know, it's, there's just a wide range of infinite possibilities you know but they need to step into the river first you know, they do. And they just need to be reminded or showed that, you know, and it's and partly what that's why we need more examples, more art, more work product, you know, and more stories and yeah. more intergenerationality. Exactly. In a way, I think exactly. that the indigenous hope you're talking about is the continuity of memory. That's mm. partly just about not having the generational segregation that so mm. marks um, yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of this country. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, yeah. God, we could, yeah, you know, maybe you we'll, are delighted. Maybe we'll take, we'll take questions, yeah. Questions. Questions yeah, from the questions. audience. And why? Okay. okay. Stand and deliver. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And you don't look like those kind of people, but no long statements, please. You're not, you're not, you're not old dudes from Berkeley. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. Hi. Okay. Hi. No, for sure. And of course, my comments are just limited to my own experience, you know, for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, like for me, like I'm 
was very lucky that I have a very loving mother, you know, who I think always at some level already intuitively knew that I was gay. But I, I also write about sort of like my first sort of coming out experience in the book. You should all know there is a piece in there called Nikki and Me uh, with my friend. And we were, um, there was a situation of bullying on the bus. So I write about it in the book. But essentially, like, I was lucky to have, like, a good sort of support system with my family and a lot of my cousins for example even like second cousins like a lot of them had it as well um but the thing though i think is that and well first of all and i also know the other stories you know of people who didn't have that people working that house i'm totally aware of sort of those experiences as well and i want to honor them uh, but i also think it's a generational thing i mean my parents it's definitely shifted dramatically dramatically in the last like 15 years super dramatically because I remember like in high school for example there would only be a few of us at least like outward like openly queer people but now there's like tons I mean actually someone in the audience was one of the first people I told I was gay to some me hello of my friend from high school but it was and, and back then and it wasn't just about the queer thing for me I lacked the I lacked the language I needed to save myself in so many respects you know I didn't have access yet to that language and I would it would take me such a long time to find it but yeah for me, it, the experience was okay. And for a lot of my cousins on both sides, the experience was okay. But I have friends um, for whom it was not. So, yeah. But I think it's changed dramatically now. Yeah. Other questions? At, um, Hello. Um, so, uh, oh, you don't yeah. want to? Yeah. Um, I grew up on Guam, but... Uh, I live here now, right? And I, so I feel very sort of separated from culture. And one of the things that I get concerned about is, uh, or maybe one of the things that I'm, I'm wary of is cultures adapt and change and evolve. Uh, but I get worried that our culture cannot sustain dilution. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like some of the things that enter culture, like, we, we get really influenced by like capitalism, you know? And it's like, we are, Guam uh, is a capitalist economy, you know, because it's part of the US. And I, I would love to just hear your thoughts about how does culture survive these influences, but still survive in the modern age? You know, like how does it continue to grow and evolve, but not lose itself? Because I also, I, 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 I also, uh, and worry about traditionalism, you know, and trying to say that everything that we do has to have been done a thousand years before, you know, like the Chamorro that we speak has to be ancient Chamorro, not like Spanishized Chamorro, that sort of thing. Um, so I don't know, I'm just curious about your, your thoughts on how indigenous cultures can grow, continue to grow. Yeah, sure. No. Oh, sorry. Thank you so much for the question. I mean, you know, it's a fair question. I mean, but again like i don't want to i can't really speak for other people's experience but i'll just give you the most immediate example the book when i wrote it so many like like old school chamorro value type things happened to me immediately like someone like like old woman who knew my grandmother came and brought like produce and fruit a fisherman came and brought a cooler full of fish I mean, young weavers brought me like woven grasshoppers, you know, and and and, and all of that. And so, like another another concrete example from the book, you know, the essay I just wrote about Auntie Francis. Like when I think about the culture, the the traditional healing practices, they are so alive and well. Like I think about Auntie Francis, for example, she treated my brother-in-law, who is very poor, 
you know, and he didn't really have enough money. And she was like, what are you talking about money? What are you possibly talking about? Like, she couldn't even possibly, she has the cash economy, all of it makes no sense to her. She gets betel nut in exchange, fish, all of these sort of, sort of old ways of doing things and relating to each other, especially when you don't have money. I mean, I saw like a million little times over and over, even while I was writing the book. I mean, so she treated my brother-in-law and so many other people and so many of the zoomtis I learned, they don't charge. They just work entirely outside of the capitalist economy. And so I believe that you should take heart in the fact that I have, I'm on the ground and I am seeing so many examples of our beautiful culture flourish, you know, right now in real time. Yeah. Other questions? Law, poetry, islands, <laughs> queerness, so, so. you name it. We have answers. Indirect, oblique, poetic, but answers. Hi. I was just wondering what you think of the political status of Guam and the CNMI and um, what you would like to see in the future. Now that's a great question. Of course, I. I have been, much of my professional life has been spent in the service of trying to defend the right of self-determination for the native inhabitants of Guam. I was a head litigator for Davis versus Guam, which was a terrible ordeal through the entire U.S. federal court system, and we ended up losing. In the U.S., sort of, U.S. federal courts have an inability now because of so much sort of ahistoricism and also colorblindness, and like they have sort of a, such a distorted race jurisprudence now. And so, anytime in a colonized people are trying to identify the colonized group, we can't even name them in an order to ask them a question because the very act of naming collapses into an act of racial categorization. So, long story short, the answer will not come from, the solution will absolutely not come from the U.S. sort of legal system. So we have to work outside of that. So we did all of those cases in order to clear those hurdles and to exhaust our domestic remedies. And now we were working at the international level to bring the cause of self-determination um, to, like, for example, the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights, possibly to the ICJ. So we've been working on those things. Um, so I want you to know that that battle is still ongoing, um, but a deeper sort of like a, a more like a more personal answer to that is obviously I long for a free Guam. You know, I worked with so many other people. How many generations of us have worked, you know, for dec I want to see full-blown decolonization. I want the, the colonized group to get behind your voting booth, choose one of those three options. And even if it was like a compromised option, even like I'm not saying it's like I necessarily care about like choosing one of the three options, but I just want it to be like a bargain for exchange. We are smart enough to negotiate the terms of a new arrangement and the current arrangement is so unjust, you know? And so that is what I'm working for. And obviously to answer your other question about CNMI, she's asking about um, the group of islands right to the north of Guam, but like we are one people, but sort of historically been politically divided, depending on which colonizer was in charge at different points in history. But obviously I believe CNMI's political status has also been totally subverted by the U.S. federal government. We see that from all the recent cases, and I believe that CNMI should work like other, like other places like French Polynesia, like New Caledonia, and work toward reinscribing onto the UN list of non-self-governing territories whose colonized inhabitants deserve uh, a chance for full-blown independence. So yes. Wow. wow. 
you're on fire in a non-carbon emitting way. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, do you want to come forward? Buenas and hafide, magusupagu sabmanatliids of tafandanyas and toru esisia. I just said that in our language in Chamorro that I am happy that we are here today and that we are all together to hear Julian's words. And so my question is, um, for those of us who do come from this background and we do the challenging work of decolonization, for example, you are on the law side and the environmentalism side, I'm on the language side. Um, how, what is your advice for people like us who do this kind of challenging work and not feel so burnt out by like the hardships that we face along the way? Thank you. <laughs> nope, no pressure. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for your question. Oh, it reminds me of a question I just had with my husband back home in Guam, who's also in the educational system back home, and feels incredibly demoralized, you know, um, because it's such a hard system to be a part of, especially because as an indigenous people, and we're passing down our language to our people, so much of that work is actually happening outside of the sort of formalized, institutionalized settings. I think the most exciting thing to happen recently was Haral and some of the other sort of like non-formalized groups because it was just generated its own kind of momentum. So I think maybe part of the burnout, maybe it's because some sort of venues may be slightly inhospitable to certain things. I mean, I know like there is a lot of progress in both Guam and CNMI with Chamorro language, but I would support a more full-blown immersion experience for our kids and I would absolutely try to work to like, I obviously can't do that myself, but maybe I can connect, I, we can connect some funding and find ways to, to fund something like in a full-blown immersion school. But maybe that would help with the burnout because it's a better environment. Yeah. You said something on page 19, for those of you who are about to go buy the book, which all of you are, as a matter of fact, you said, indeed, part of our work as people who dare to believe that we can save the world is to, pr to prepare our wills to withstand some losing so that we w may lose and still set out again anyhow. Let me just read that last bit again. Mm -hmm. Prepare our wills to withstand some losing so that w we may lose and still set out again anyhow. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. No, I think just a little question. Yeah. Well, actually, I'll just go right back to that piece. That the larger point in that as like, I was telling a story, a legend about the, the woman of Guam. So I guess what I'm, the real answer? Do you want to tell it? Sure. So this piece is called, it's my mother's bamboo bracelets. And I'm actually talking about this sort of like one of our oldest stories as a people. And that is like, basically one day there was a giant fish and I was eating the island with the wise, one chunk after another, you know? And so like the men sort of, for, the men were tried in vain to catch. They made nets. They tried to spear it. They tried all kinds of things. And they just could not ca uh, like catch this giant fish. And every day, the women offered their help to help catch this fish. And every day, the men, forgetting the strength of women, rejected them, you know? And eventually, the Magahaga, which is like the, the elder among the women, uh, devised a plan. And she said, we will make a giant net of our, of, so they made a giant net of their long black hair. And so that's why no one has written about this like before, but I wanted to write, tell this particular story it, 
and, and so this is my conclusion of this, or my takeaway is that it was our women's offering of beauty that saved Guam. Because they were able, because the fish was unable to break this net made of their hair because it was imbued with deep spiritual affection and was therefore unbreakable. And so that is the lesson of the story. And so the reason why I write that is because I'm talking about all the women in my life, all the women, my grandmother, my mother, um, you know, my, my aunts, such a wide array of aunts, you know, who have appeared in my life and have mothered me in one way or another, because, you know, mothering, right, to mother is a verb as well as a noun. We know? need aunt to be a verb, too. Yeah, we do. And that, it's that, it's all of that. It's like coming, having come from a tradition of, of respecting, holding up, and just celebrating woman's strength, I feel like I have enough you know, that is enough of a wellspring for me to draw, you know, so I try to, when in doubt, I try to retreat to that well and, you know, draw water from that well. And that is what sort of is what I'm talking about in the book. Yeah. Wow. Do it one more. Or that's yeah. Okay. Oh. Uh, can Annabelle ask a question? Yes. This is my friend Annabelle Park, who I've been friends with Hi. for five years and met for the first time today. <laughs> um, so this problem with the military expansion, um, is at what stage is that? And is there something we can do about that? No. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so some of it, there's definitely things we can still do. Um, for example, we just uh, filed um, a submission to the UN Special Rapporteurs on Indigenous Peoples, um, Human Rights and the Environment and Toxic. And they just recently released uh, Historic because the two more people have been going to the UN for about 55 years and we've never actually got anything out of the UN in all of that time. You know, but they actually uh, just issued a joint, a joint allegation letter to the US government saying that the US military buildup now underway in the island is violating a wide range of human rights. Uh, so that had never happened before. So now we're trying to take that and run with it. So we're there's so many things we can do, both at the international level, but also the national level. As Congress sort of sort of, and, and all of and sort of the whole country sort of ratchets up this sort of like anti-China rhetoric, it's very, very dangerous for frontline communities like Guam because what we're seeing now is the US under the guise that China China's emerging as the United States' biggest pacing challenge, you know, and they're trying to contain China's influence in the region. It's just escalating so much. That is sort of the justification. So approaching, for example, certain members who sit on the House Armed Services Committee, targeting them, those are really specific things that we're hoping to be able to do. Um, and part of what I've learned from this experience being on the book tour thus far is that so few members of Congress have ever heard of Guam. They've never thought about Guam ever. It's crazy. It's like they just did no thought. So like, for example, a friend connected me with um, Representative um, Pramila Jayapal, who we just gave the book, and she just responded and said she loved the book. And so she's now going to say, okay, how can I get spread this awareness about Guam. So it's like that, talking to the people who do make decisions. And let's be clear, all of these decisions have been greenlit by Congress, which is constituted of entirely of people we cannot vote for. So this is colonization meeting and being exacerbated by the harms of militarization. So yes, I welcome all of your support. We welcome your support. We could end there, but you know, we had a poetic moment. We've had a practical moment. One of the wonders of 
meeting you is how beautifully you constantly connect those two things. So thank you, absolutely amazing audience in Kerouac Alley. Thank you, City Lights Books. At um, thank you so much, Julian. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, everybody, for coming. This really means so much. So, thank you. Thank you. Jim. listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.